In February 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. The focus of the pre-conference was on the theme, Evangel, Evangelical, Evangelicalism, and the EFCA. On this episode of the podcast, we share Mark Knoll's opening message on the topic, Evangelical in the Early 21st Century, and Historical and Global Perspective. Mark serves as the Research Professor of History, Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia, and Professor Emeritus, Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. I'd like to start by commending the Free Church and its organizers for setting aside time for this kind of consideration. It is a timely subject, but church groups are not notorious for always taking up timely subjects, and it's great that you are. I'd like to say one other thing before uh, commencing the talk, which is a sincere word of appreciation for the life of the late Reverend William Hamill. You know that he served the Free Church so faithfully for so many years. I was privileged to know Bill as a college student and to connect with him a few times over the years. I know that he was a genuine servant of the servant of the Lord, and as such he will be missed. So, as uh, Greg has already said, it's not a shocking revelation to say that the word evangelical and the groups designated by that term are in trouble. Spokesmen and spokeswomen for the so-called 81% have called Donald Trump Cyrus, with reference to the notable figure from the Old Testament, the Persian king, who is not part of the Hebrew chosen people, but who nonetheless did the business of Yahweh. On August 27th, last year, at a formal White House dinner, attended by over 100 evangelical leaders, Ralph Reed detailed some of the reasons for that white evangelical support. Reed, who was formerly the first executive director of the Christian Coalition and now serves as the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, said that evangelicals have a tremendous amount of appreciation and gratitude for the president and his administration specifically for making religious freedom, the sanctity of life, support for the state of Israel, and so many other public policy concerns, such high priorities. Yet expressions of affirmation from evangelicals who back Trump have been matched, as we've seen already today, in fervor by cries of anguish from other corners of the evangelical world. So Greg actually did more research than I do, but I'm going to give you some more titles of books, blog posts, and articles that express that consternation. Still evangelical, 10 insiders reconsider why I can no longer call myself an evangelical Republican. Polls show evangelical support Trump, but the term evangelical has become meaningless. It was no surprise that some evangelical leaders who were not present at the White House last August 27th expressed opinions about the current American situation that differed considerably from those who did attend the dinner. Michael Horton of Westminster Theological Seminary, California, for example, responded specifically to President Trump's telling the assembled evangelical leaders that you are one election away from losing everything you've got. Horton wasn't buying it. 
He said, anyone who believes, much less preaches, that evangelical Christians are one election away from losing everything has forgotten how to sing the psalmist song. Do not put your trust in princes in human beings who cannot save. Yet, not entirely lost in the superheated ideological cauldron of American political punditry has been another salient fact. That important fact makes questions about evangelicalism much more ambiguous and much more interesting than media hype suggests. Here's the fact. The very high level of white evangelical support for Donald Trump is like nothing seen in America's recent religious political history except for the even higher percentage of support that Bible-believing African Americans have given to Democrats since the 1960s. To mention this one other exceedingly strong religious political connection immediately spotlights why the word evangelical is in trouble. For much of post-war America, George Gallup identified evangelicals as those who said they were born again or had undergone a born-again conversion experience. Yet if significant numbers of born-again and Bible-believing African Americans have been voting for Democrats in even higher proportions and for a longer period than white evangelicals have been voting for Republicans, then how can anyone speak responsibly about evangelical support for Donald Trump without serious questions. So in today's talk, I would like to attempt first a definition of evangelical and evangelicalism that might help answer such questions, particularly how white Americans and African Americans can show so much can share so much in their personal religion, yet differ so drastically in their political allegiance. Then on the basis of that definition, I'd like to complicate what we think we know about evangelical Christianity. (laughs) And pastors always have to do a little complicating, right, before you do the smoothing of things out. I'd like to look at a few specific issues where contemporary publicity has jumped to conclusion about the supposedly exclusive evangelical position. But then I would like to broaden our perspective and examine questions about evangelicals throughout the world, where, to say the least, things are not always the same as in our country. So first, definition, then a little bit of complexity, and a little bit longer period of time spent on the world. Standard definitions of evangelical Christianity stress patterns of belief and behavior that have remained especially strong among Protestants since the 18th century. The best overall definition has been provided by the British historian David Bebbington, who highlights four characteristics, and we'll maybe get the next slide right here. Bebbington usually stresses, Bebbington's definition stresses that evangelicals have usually focused upon the importance of conversion to Christ. They always treat the Bible as their highest religious authority. They stress the, the, the work of Christ on the cross as the key to their religion and they expect believers to be active in living out the Christian life, especially in sharing the gospel message. Historically, however, one more quality has been supremely important. Evangelicals have insisted upon the personal character of their faith, the necessity for Christianity to be experienced personally, understood personally, and acted upon personally. That personal emphasis is a scarlet thread running through the songs and hymns that are the heart of evangelical worship. 
when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Here I am, down on my knees, surrendering all. Once the centrality of personal faith in Christ is kept in view as the key to evangelical Christianity, it's much easier to see why evangelicals might differ so dramatically over specific church practices or doctrines, over political or social convictions, over scientific and academic questions, and much more. And consider one more difficulty in coming up with a precise definition of evangelicalism. In past centuries, evangelical beliefs and practices have flourished almost exclusively within Protestant churches. In fact, for a very long time, and you can actually find this definition sometimes in in, uh, historical dictionaries, evangelical and anti-Catholic were almost synonymous terms but that's no longer the case. Beginning with the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s and growing stronger year by year, the number of Catholics who look a lot like evangelicals has continued to grow. There was a very extensive survey taken in the early 1990s by the Angus Reid polling service in Canada. 3,000 individuals in Canada, 3,000 in the United States that included many religious questions, including four of them that were keyed to the Bebbington Quadrilateral. The result... Of those who responded most positively to those four questions, about one-sixth of the Americans and one-fourth of the Canadians were Roman Catholics. I would say from teaching uh, at Notre Dame, amongst the undergraduates, there was always a small but significant minority who looked like, prayed like, used the cliches of, walked like, smelled like, evangelical Protestant Christians. Not so many on the faculty, not so many of the graduate students, but they were there. So, setting complications aside, a historically well-grounded definition of evangelicalism rightly stresses the, the importance of personally appropriated Christian faith. But what are the implications? As a Christian historian, I think it's necessary to say something positive, but also something negative. Put positively, evangelical emphases have bestowed incredible dynamism on Christian movements. When individual lives are redirected and re-energized by experiencing the forgiveness of sin through the work of Christ on the cross and then experience the empowering power of the Holy Spirit, the Christian can become more compelling. The evangelist George Whitfield was the most effective public communicator of the 18th century. Billy Graham was likewise one of the most effective public communicators of the recent past because they were empowered by the gospel. When evangelical experience takes hold, it can exhibit great resilience. Almost all of the recent marvels in the recent history of Christianity in China are connected in some way to what must be considered evangelical features. When evangelical faith comes alive, it can become more socially alert. We can't have a lecture on the history of evangelicalism without reminding ourselves about William Wilberforce, who with other associates, Quakers, some even secular people, 
were responsible for the ending of the slave trade and then of slavery itself in the British Empire. So that's the positive. But there's also a not-so-positive. Christian movements are evangelical because of how they stress the personal relationship with Christ. But with that stress often comes a bias against inherited institutions, a disdain for elites, and a suspicion of tradition because inherited traditions, elites, and traditions are thought to deaden the sense of personal communion with God. As a result, evangelical movements have been extraordinarily flexible in relationship to intellectual questions, political convictions, economic structures, gender relationships, and much more. Evangelicals do not deny the importance of these spheres of life, but since they are much less important than personal faith, evangelicals have embraced, modified, discarded, or transformed intellectual, political, economic, gender, and other issues with great abandon, sometimes to good effect, but sometimes with results that have been anything but good. In sum, evangelical faith by itself implies almost nothing about attitudes toward politics, institutions, cultures, history, music, and more. Of course, how the word is being used in the popular press today obscures that complicating reality. Well, what are some more questions of complexity in our day? The fluidity of evangelical self-definition, where personal faith is a key to evangelical identity, goes a long way toward explaining many of the conundrums of our day that show up if we peer beneath the surface of popular stereotypes. So, do a majority of white evangelicals support President Trump? Yes. But so have many of the most trenchant critics of Donald Trump been evangelicals, like Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska, or two evangelicals who, as conservative Republicans, worked in the George W. Bush White House, Michael Gerson and Pete Weiner. Do many white evangelicals advocate creation science and reject evolution as essentially godless? Yes. But so do many well-known evangelicals like Francis Collins, director of the National Institute of Health and a key leader in the Human Genome Project, explain in considerable detail how a Bible-believing, born-again Christian can be a practicing evolutionist. Evangelicals do sponsor the Creation Science Museum and the Noah's Ark Park that insist on a recent date for the creation and the reality of a worldwide flood, but evangelicals are also the key figures in BioLogos, an organization of PhD scientists who explain how, as Bible-believing Christians, they practice conventional evolutionary science. Again, do some white evangelicals express extreme suspicion of immigrants and undocumented aliens? Yes, they do. But so have evangelical agencies like World Relief of the National Association of Evangelicals been leaders in welcoming, settling, educating, and supporting immigrants from all corners of the globe and have been doing so for many decades. So also have evangelical scholars like Daniel Carl Rhoda published important books to explain why churches should take a lead in welcoming refugees and other strangers. These contemporary complexities could be multiplied almost without end. 
if we broadened our attention to consider the history of evangelicalism since the 18th century. But I think I've said enough to show that any responsible discussion of even American evangelicalism, not even to speak of evangelicals around the world, should slow down, should try to avoid stereotypes. Above all, it is imperative to remember that evangelical Christianity designates a particular expression of the Christian faith. And since that expression of Christianity has historically referred first and foremost to religious beliefs and religious practices, there should be no leaping to conclusions about the political, cultural, social, or intellectual meaning of evangelicalism without examining particular instances and particular examples. But now, what about the world at large? Uh, some of you will remember some pretty half-baked witticisms during the recent World Cup in Russia, right? How can there be a World Cup without the United States taking place? And then other even less well-baked witticisms. Ah, but since Dominicans and Cubans and Venezuelans and a few Japanese play in our baseball league, we can still have a genuine world series. It's good to be reminded, if only from the world of sport, that the United States is not the world. If evangelicalism is a problematic category in the United States because of long-standing black-white racial di divisions and more recent political polarization, what about the rest of the world? where American racial history and contemporary American politics are far less salient, or in many cases, simply irrelevant. Yet, when widening consideration to evangelical-like constituencies throughout the world, a different but equally daunting challenge arises. Do not realities of cultural, ethnic, economic, and national diversity create an even more fragmented picture than racial and political divisions have made for the United States. Three recent historical efforts suggest that the answer may be both yes and no. Each of the three acknowledge ambiguities, difficulties, complexities, and any comprehensive definition, but nevertheless hold out the possibility that evangelicalism may still be a viable designation for an actively or an actually existing reality. Now, I sort of had to warn Greg that if you ask an academic to give a talk, you're going to get an academic talk. So what's coming next is a book review section of this talk. And if you'd like to just sleep peacefully, Daryl will be sure to wake you up when he, when he comes to the, to the podium. Okay. Doubts about the possibility of a coherent meaning of evangelicalism emerged prominently in the later stages of a five-volume history of evangelicalism in the English-speaking world that I was privileged to edit with David Bebbington. We'll have the next slide to show these books. The series traces evangelicalism in the English-speaking world from the 18th century revivals of George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards to the end of the 20th century. The first three books treat the two centuries from the early revivals when considerable co cohesion marked evangelicalism in Britain, North America, and the British settler colonies, 
it is obvious that what might be called a shared conversation, this is a nice phrase, a shared conversation, was sustained across the entire Atlantic region from the early 18th century to about 1900. To be sure, those years did witness many internal disagreements, some concerning theology, especially Calvinists versus Arminians, and then the meaning of baptism. Other differences dealt with church order, especially free church, opposition to state church Anglicanism and state church Scottish Presbyterianism. Still other differences came from controversies over political and social issues. The sharpest of those internal divisions involved race. When in 1846, representatives to the first transnational evangelical alliance gathered in London, they agreed on the authority of the Bible, the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit, the atonement won by Christ and the cross, and more. Yet these evangelicals disagreed over whether slaveholders could join the alliance. Disagreement also came from Americans who were offended that the slavery issue sidelined their objection to evangelicals being in state churches. As a result, the alliance never became a vigorous internal organization, and in addition, the American Civil War heightened dilemmas for evangelical history created by racial divisions. Immediately after the abolition of slavery, the freed men and freed women poured out of white-dominated evangelical churches into denominations of their own control. Most maintained evangelical beliefs, but network ties, network ties with white evangelicals suffered a breach that has continued to this day. The result is a continuing challenge for historical interpretation. Do groups sharing evangelical beliefs, but not religious practices, and few ongoing connections, agreeing on most doctrines, but inhabiting different cultures, do they constitute one historical reality or many? Nevertheless, within limits, evangelicals throughout this period, up till about 1900 or somewhat thereafter, were easily identified by dense networks of preachers, prayer meetings, publishing efforts, and personal witnessing that reached back to the 18th century revivals. Diversity within these networks over many, many different issues constantly affected how evangelicalism was understood or applied, but yet much clearer was what David Bebbington aptly describes as the widespread dominance of evangelicalism at the end of the 19th century. By that time, there were significant forces working to weaken evangelical convictions, yet even stronger were markers of evangelical cohesion. The weekly sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon streamed out of London to eager readers throughout the world. D.L. Moody was every bit as popular in England, Scotland, and Canada as he was in the United States. Even with some ambiguity about what the world denoted, evangelical denominational families made up an informal contact, what they lacked in formal international organization. And forms of spirituality, responding to the era's romantic currents, like the uh, meetings at Keswick in England, teaching about the higher spiritual life, attracted worldwide adherence. The last two books of the series, however, and especially Brian Stanley's history, and we'll have that slide next, describe an evangelicalism with many more challenges to coherence, to be sure. 
The extensive national and international networks forged in earlier decades remain vigorous. R.A. Torrey, one of D.L. Moody's chief lieutenants, traveled literally around the world to promote true religion as depending on the active work of the Holy Spirit. John R. Mott's great ecumenical energy culminated in the Edinburgh Missionary Conference of 1910 that drew together a wide assembly of European and North American evangelists, church planners, missionary, medical, and social workers. Amy Semple McPherson became a widely recognized North American phenomenon as she proclaimed a fourfold gospel of healing and redemption, which, which translated older evangelical emphases into a new Pentecostal vocabulary. During the second half of the 19th century, sorry, the 20th century, the energetic activities of John Stott and Billy Graham demonstrated the broad, ongoing attraction of traditional evangelical preaching. The multitude of their international connections and their cooperation as key leaders in the 1974 Lausanne International Congress on World Evangelization illustrated the ongoing reality of international evangelicalism. Yet, throughout the past century, diversifying forces have also intensified. Lausanne 74 is a good example. While Graham, Stott, and other Western leaders headlined the event, emerging voices like Rene Padilla and Samuel Escobar stressed Christian responsibility for social development in Latin America and elsewhere in the majority world much more strongly than white evangelicals had done in 20th century Britain or the U.S., the worldwide rise of Pentecostalism also propelled diversity. When Pentecostals looked directly to the New Testament as their model for how to live as believers in the present, it meant for some, links to previous Protestant movements receded. To be sure, in most cases, Pentecostals embraced traditional evangelical emphases in some form, even as they placed new stress on an active Holy Spirit. Yet with the expansion of Pentecostal movements in the second half of the 20th century, as well as the evolution of some into promoters of prosperity gospel, the challenges grew for viewing evangelicalism as a connected or a cohesive entity. In other words, evangelicalism is defined by active embrace of some combination of David Bevington's fourfold definition was experiencing both centrifugal and centripetal forces. More recently, the most important new reality has become what Brian Stanley labels the explosive popular Christianity of the Southern Hemisphere. Popular forms of Christianity which are expanding so rapidly and with so many varieties in Africa, Latin America, China, and elsewhere have been stimulated in many ways by older evangelical principles and practices, but they also differ considerably. Think about the main concerns of what might be considered uh, white evangelical American Christianity and to some extent even black evangelical American Christianity. Nominal religion, the threat to Christianity of secular materialism, the management of economic abundance, the choice of where to appropriate resources. These are well-known, ingrained North American evangelical challenges. But think about the rest of the world, where the main concerns are poverty, disease, oppression, 
demonic forces. The gospel fueling the new majority world Christianity resembles the message proclaimed by George Whitfield, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, or Billy Graham. Yet cultural contexts differ so much from those in which generations of English-speaking evangelicals proclaim the gospel message. Those, those differences have led Brian Stanley to ask whether in these newer movements the balance will be tipped away from historical evangelicalism, which he defines as a Bible-centered gospel that, while being properly holistic, still holds to the soteriological centrality and ethical normativity of the cross. Instead, Stanley thinks the newer movements may come to favor, and this is his terms now, a form of religious materialism that subordinates the cross to a crude theology of divine blessing reduced to the promise of unlimited health and wealth here and now. So in these circumstances, it might seem that positing a worldwide evangelicalism has become even more problematic than discerning a coherent evangelicalism in the United States, but not necessarily. So you've got two more books to listen to about. <laughs> Insights from a second recent publication underscore the challenge, but nevertheless rise to meet the challenge. And we'll have the next slide. In 2012, a Cambridge University Press book authored by Mark Hutchinson from Australia and John Wolfe from England, A Short History of Global Evangelicalism, set out their definition of evangelicalism with meticulous care. Hutchinson and Wolfe acknowledged real difficulties in coming up with a coherent definition of evangelicalism around the world, but they also maintain that difficulties of a definition are not the same as impossibilities. Their effort is probably the best ever attempt to define evangelicalism as a flexible but still meaningful category. They include attention to many attempts, historical and contemporary at a definition, but then they focus on three. They follow the American historian George Marsden, who on several different occasions has said, when you say evangelical or evangelicalism, you have to identify the subspecies. What are the types of evangelicalism you're talking about? They follow David Bebbington's well-known fourfold rubric, and they follow the Australian historian Stuart Piggin, who once wrote or has written a really good history of evangelicalism in Australia defined by spirit, activity of the Holy Spirit, word, primacy of scripture, and world, experiential renovation of self. So spirit, word, and world. Now, Hutchison and Wolfe, while acknowledging the incompatibility of some, of these, some elements in these definitions, nonetheless shrewdly draw distinctions that are worth quoting at length. And so we'll have a lengthy quotation here. If you're not yet asleep from the book reviews, the quotation is going to do it. Intelligent analysis of evangelicalism needs to start from the recognition that it is a fluid and diverse phenomenon with boundaries that cannot be rigidly defined. It is this fluidity that has given it much of its power, even as it contributes to confusion. Rather than articulate, articulate and defend a single definitional model, we shall develop an interpretation that draws on all three approaches. That is the different varieties, Bebbington and then the word, spirit, and world. 
and then also the longer-term historical self-understanding. Although emphasizing that evangelicalism cannot be intellectually or organizationally pigeonholed and circumscribed, we would still emphatically affirm its existence as a meaningful concept, representing a recognizable, self-aware, distinct style of Protestantism undergirded by shared convictions and assumptions. Now, the success of this particular book depends upon the author's ability to show the thick interrelationships that have characterized this difficult-to-define-something as it swings, and this is their term, between its missional, experiential, and doctrinal definitional touchpoints as it encounters new situations negotiating between effectiveness and self-definition. I'd like now to use the example of historic, historical example of evangelical movements in India to underscore the challenges faced by even such a far-ranging definition as Hutchinson and Wolfe have provided. Early in the 20th century, Vednayagam Samuel Azariah, and we'll have a, a picture of him on, on the screen, was the first Indian to become an Anglican bishop. Azariah it combined extensive connections with Western evangelical movements and deliberate indigenization of Christianity in his Indian context. He was born in 1874 in far southeastern India. He was educated at schools established by the Church of England and the Church of Scotland. And he spent three years at the Madras Christian College where he was introduced to the YMCA and soon became one of India's first full-time Y workers. Throughout his life, he was particularly keen that Christian evangelism, education, and economic development break the iron fetters of caste. His work for the YMCA brought him into contact with John R. Mott and other international leaders. With fellow Y worker Sherwood Eddy, he translated Charles Finney's Lectures on Revival into Tamil, during the first decade of the 20th century, he was also instrumental in founding the Indian Missionary Society of Tinnevelli and the National Indian Missionary Society, the latter under the motto, Indian money, Indian men, and Indian management. In 1909, he was ordained an Anglican priest and assigned to work in the Telugu-speaking Dornakal district, located in what is now Andhra Pradesh where he began a remarkable work of evangelizing, teaching, educating, and empowering the mostly untouchable, the Dalit population and tribal peoples who made up the bulk of Anglican converts. He was ordained bishop in 1912 after prejudice was overcome in the British Parliament about the idea of an Indian exercising ecclesiastical jurisdiction over Britons. Although Azariah maintained international contacts during his more than three decades as bishop, most of his time was spent traveling ceaselessly throughout the towns and villages of his diocese, which was larger than all of England. His steady resolve to replace caste civilization with Christian civilization won him some wider respect, but he was also attacked by ardent nationalists like Mohandas Gandhi when Azariah tempered his own firm Indian nationalism with discriminating praise for the British Empire. The cathedral he built in Dornical, and we've got an we've got a, a image of that cathedral, was a stunning architectural mixture of classical Christian and traditional Indian motifs. He died in harness in 1945, 
Long after Sherwood Eddy had abandoned his youthful evangelical faith, Eddy said of the sturdy, sturdily evangelical Azariah, he was the greatest man whose life I was ever privileged to share. Azariah's biography clearly supports the definition of evangelicalism that Hutchinson and Wolfe lay out with meticulous care. His work as YMCA organizer and Anglican bishop featured conversion above all, but also the Bible, activism, and the cross. It blended spirit, word, and world. It emphasized the missional, but without neglecting the experiential and the doctrinal. His departure from life on New Year's Day 1945 illustrated the nature of that evangelicalism. Since he succumbed to illness after traveling by bullock cart to confirm a number of largely illiterate rural villagers who recited their catechism with songs that Azariah had himself composed. But now, in a more recent India, where evangelical-like movements have become more like those described by Brian Stanley, it's more difficult to perceive evangelical coherence. India today is home to at least three times as many broadly defined evangelicals as found in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia combined. Its evangelical communities are sponsoring almost as many cross-cultural missionaries has come from the United States. And its tens of thousands of denominations and parachurch agencies include a large number that are virtually unconnected to anything from the West. Moreover, demography may not be as influential as culture. In Azariah's native Tamil, Nadu, 10 million or so evangelicals include an increasing number of Dalits who risk loss of civil standing and harsh persecution for militant Hindu factions for confessing the Christian faith. Fewer evangelicals live in Andhra Pradesh, the state of Azariah's faith, uh, fruitful episcopate, perhaps three to five million out of nearly 90 million inhabitants. But this state includes the great city of Hyderabad, a hub at the forefront of India's economic expansion, but now also home to nearly 200 different Christian organizations. Outside the main urban centers of Andhra Pradesh, great numbers of Dalits have been converted to Christianity, but some of them have been reconverted to Hinduism through the efforts of Hindutva nationalists. In other regions of India, the challenges faced evangelicals reign widely. In some parts of India, it is the task of establishing a mere beachhead for churches to survive in the state of militant persecution. In other parts of, of, of India, there is the challenge of developing a non-Western Christendom that can es escape the opprobrium of being considered an imperialist faith. And then, as some of you know, in Nagaland, in northeast India, the problem is there are just too many Baptists, more proportionally than in Alabama and Mississippi, the work of early Baptist evangelistic missions from Wales and the United States at the end of the 19th century. Azariah's India was clearly connected to a history stretching back to John Wesley, the Countess of Huntington, and William Carey. Yet for many Indian Protestant Christians today, these ties are much less obvious. In addition, Indian evangelicals have never enjoyed anything like the middle-class agency that British and American white evangelicals so long have taken for granted. 
Many of them suffer persecution of the type unknown among white evangelicals in the Anglo-American world. A majority are Dalits, or tribal people, who have faced generational marginalization, even worse than African Americans long endured in the United States. And the intellectual, spiritual challenges faced by Indian evangelicals have almost nothing to do with European Christendom, European or American Protestant history, the Enlightenment, scientific modernity, the Western discovery of the individual, and other Western cultural developments that accompanied the rise of evangelicalism in North America and Britain. V. Azariah was himself a bridge from the evangelical world described so well in Hutchinson and Wolfe's global history to the evangelical world of today and tomorrow that the authors insightfully label global pilgrimage. Yet for pilgrims from everywhere to everywhere, it will be increasingly difficult to write a coherent history or perceive a common meaning for evangelicalism. Brian Stiller and his co-editors for the recently published handbook, Evangelicals Around the World, laugh, as it were, at the difficulty. Stiller, who is the global ambassador of the World Evangelical Alliance, is entirely sanguine about the viability of evangelicalism as a meaningful category for people, movements, organizations, institutions that, though marked by extraordinary diversity, are still linked by basic evangelical characteristic. This global handbook for the 21st century, Evangelicals Around the World, is a 2015 publication of the World Evangelical Fellowship brought out by Thomas Nelson in Nashville. On the perennial conundrum of definition, the handbook does not obsess. Rather than trying to adjudicate this always tricky problem, the book functions as an equal opportunity enumerator by using definitions supplied by both Gordon Conwell's World Christian Database and Jason Mandrick's Reliable Operation World from InterVarsity Press. The former uses a definition similar to those that came up with white evangelicals in the United States. It counts adherents of evangelical or partially evangelical denominations, many of which have formal or historical connections with Western organizations. The latter employs the strategy of the National Association of Evangelicals and its recent polls, which count as evangelicals those who believe or embrace traditional markers of evangelicalism. With this with its approach, the database presents a total of about either 300 million or with Operation World, maybe 500 million. By offering results from both of these carefully developed enumerations, but without trying to adjudicate between them, Stiller's Global Handbook simply gets on with the task of providing useful information rather than working, 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 working away at the definitional precision. Most of the time, the strategy works well. In Cambodia, for example, churches begun by Christian Missionary Alliance missionaries were all but wiped out in the genocide orchestrated by Pol Pot in the late 1970s. Remnants of these churches straggled into Thai refugee camps where they hung on until they were allowed to return. Shoots from that metaphorical stump have become more than 200,000 evangelical-like Cambodians in flourishing churches that also now dispatch their own missionaries into unevangelized villages. Cambodian evangelicals also provide the main support for Ratanic International, an NGO founded by Brian McConaughey, 
a former member of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that combats sex trafficking under the leadership of individuals like Rea Seca Him, whose family was killed by the Khmer Rouge, but who obtained training as a psychologist in Canada before returning as a missionary to his own native people. Ask yourself, what in the world would a Canadian evangelical be doing thinking positively or negatively about Donald Trump? The answer is obvious. Uh, absolutely nothing. The combination of links to well-recognized Western evangelicals and rooting in local context also describes developments in sub-Saharan Africa, yet with even greater diversity. In East Africa, for example, 53 organizations have joined to create the Tanzania Evangelical Fellowship. In Nairobi, the Africa International University offers doctoral training, still with a few American, North American faculty, but not many. In Nigeria, the Evangelical Church Winning All, ECWA, E-C-W-A, an offshoot of the Sudan Interior Mission, now includes over 5,000 congregations with 6 million adherents while sponsoring two seminaries, eight Bible colleges, 15 theological training seminaries, centers, four hospitals, 100 medical clinics, an HIV-AIDS ministry team, and a school for nurses and midwives. Connections to a recognized evangelical heritage are looser for the huge variety of rapidly expanding health and wealth, charismatic and Pentecostal churches, but many of these have also some traditional evangelical links or practice of faith with at least some of the traditional evangelical markers. The angle of vision from which evangelicals around the world must prepared helps explain why it sidesteps American preoccupations. One of the authors, Todd Johnson, is an American, but he works at Gordon-Conwell as the head of the database trying to track Christians around the world. Uh, Stiller and, and his wife, who also contributed to the volume as editors, are Canadians. Mark Hutchinson, again, is an Australian on the faculty of Alpha Crucis College near uh, Sydney. From these positions, the editors offer an understanding of world evangelicalism in which Britain and the United States are only part of the story. So, in an instance, I was privileged to walk through the Rolfing Library uh, ahead of this meeting. It was just, just, just a little surprised to see the kind of, what do we call it, iconography related to John Stott, right? He's, his robe is there. It is, is, uh, it's like coming to Wheaton College where I taught, and you've got to go genuflect to C.S. Lewis's wardrobe from, from time to time. <laughs> these, don't, these don't seem like really free church things, but uh, you know, we, live in, we live in a strange room. So, Stott comes up a lot. Stott comes up a lot in evangelicals around the world, but it's not so much his work in London, but it's, it's his willingness to lead the Lausanne Covenant of 1974 toward recognizing social services as an essential partner of evangelism, and then for his philanthropic work that used to bring, as I understand students here, doctoral-level students to Western centers, but now is funding a lot of non-Western doctoral study in non-Western countries. This book also does a good service in advertising the World Evangelical Alliance, which is, uh, uh, draws together the efforts of 150 member organizations in 129 countries. An insightful essay on the WEA by Ian Randall, who used to divide his time before he retired between London and a seminary in Czechoslovakia, 
describes an organization with roots in 19th century evangelical efforts, but a modern structure that emerged after World War II. In typical evangelical fashion, the WEA is completely voluntary, which means it's always hustling for funds. There's nothing like an icon of centrality as the Catholics have with, with the Pope, yet its efforts to link the often strongly individualistic segments of worldwide evangelicalism makes the WEA a meaningful reality and not just an imagined reality about worldwide evangelicalism. So, two important conclusions from taking the perspective of the global handbook seriously. First is the question about the meaning of evangelicalism. It is now imperative when thinking about the meaning to consider the whole world. By either of the enumerating strategies mentioned above, more evangelicals now live in Nigeria and Brazil when taken together than in the United States. More evangelicals are now found in each of Nigeria and Brazil and also in each of China, Kenya, South Korea, India, and Indonesia than in any of the European homelands from which evangelicalism emerged. And today, the most evangelical nations in the world, when measured by proportions of national population, are not the United States, England, Scotland, or Canada, but Vanuatu, Barbados, the Bahamas, Kenya, the Solomon Islands, South Korea, and the Central African Republic. Second, if observers can accept a certain sloppiness in boundary marking, and if coordinated political activity is not their chief concern, then conceptual similarities focused on religion and connections that are not political can still define a worldwide phenomenon. Or at least that's the conclusion of the mostly non-American authors who produced this particular book. Their book is a way of saying, well, we can't give you a uniform, precise definition of evangelicalism, but you will know it when you see it. <laughs> and so, back to the endangered state of evangelicalism in the contemporary United States. For that consideration, the difference between evangelical and evangelicalism may be crucial. Deep confusion in the United States concerning who counts as an evangelical is not necessarily the same as confusion about the reality of evangelicalism. From the perspective of the World Evangelical Alliance, it's easier to contextualize current intense disagreements among Americans who were once content simply to be known as evangelicals or content not even to worry about what they were called. In fact, intense political disagreement may coexist with the reality of ongoing webs of connections among groups whom the Bebbington characteristics describe. Historically considered, it's all too obvious that the religious political controversies of the American present are the last chapter in a long history of intra-evangelical differences that include at least the following. So, actually, you don't, you don't ever like to say as a historian, well, you should have seen it back then. But, but, but friends, the level, the level of disagreement today amongst those who might be classed as evangelical Christians is nothing new, and in many ways it's milder than what has happened in American history. Think, Bible-believing patriots in, in violent opposition to Bible-believing loyalists, black slaves filled with the Holy Spirit alongside white slave owners 
affirming their absolute trust in the Trinity. Con converted Confederates and converted Union soldiers killing each other with abandon. Dispensationalists and the Reformed and Pentecostals anathematizing one another. Indifference to the New World combined with conceptions of FDR as the Antichrist. Active support of integration alongside active support of the segregationist status quo. Just as historians of American evangelicalism have explained why evangelicals could divide so passionately in theology, ideology, and politics, so have historians of world evangelicalism explained why a myriad of local particularities do not entirely obscure a shared faith. In the United States, it may be the case that the E-words should be put to rest for a season because of their excessive entanglement with the particular national political controversies of the moment. But even where evangelical and evangelicalism lose cogency in one location as terms, it does not mean that the words are irrelevant for those with the world in view. By no account does decentering the United States resolve all problems for conceptualizing evangelicalism in general. It might, however, mean that for both the general history of evangelicalism and assessments of the contemporary American situation, it would be easier to follow the lead of George Whitfield, who was immensely significant for the upsurge of evangelical movements in the 18th century, but also blithely unconcerned with so many matters about which academics and political pundits obsess. So here's George Whitfield. He comes into Boston in September of 1740. He's already received a great deal of notoriety, notoriety some positive, some negative, for being the, the most dynamic public speaker in 18th century London. He's already had one tour in the United States of preaching where thousands come, usually more people than in a community. He comes to Boston, and he has a meeting with the Anglican ministers in Boston, and they are not pleased with this fellow Anglican minister. They berate him because he has been holding services and worshiping with Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and others whom these Anglican leaders do not consider true followers of Jesus because they have faulty forms of church order. Whitfield replies, I saw regenerate souls among the Baptists, among the Presbyterians, among the Independents, and among the Anglican folks, all children of God, and yet all born again in a different way of worship, and who can tell which is the most evangelical? What Whitfield saw but could evoke more easily than he could define, has spread throughout the world in variations beyond his imagining. Those countless variations and not the vagaries of American political history will determine the boundaries, acceptable ambiguities, evolutionary byways, and indeed the survival of evangelicalism in the world in the days and years Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast.